All right, listeners. So in today's episode of American History with Professor Cheryl Boswell, we're going to be looking at the segment that I like to call Old Worlds, New Worlds. So looking at, you know, Europe, especially, and parts of Asia as well, and what's going on that then leads them into colonial exploration. All right, so let's get started. Looking at your Asia and Africa in the 15th century, 1400. So in about 1450, the Western European kingdoms that would later be the big colonial powerhouses of the world, they're still on the fringe of an international economy that is very much dominated and revolving around China. And Ming Dynasty China, it is the richest, most powerful, most advanced society in the world at this time. All of Europe and Asia wants Chinese goods, especially spices, ceramics, silks. Everybody wants anything to do with China. China has everything you could ever want at this time. Everybody wants a piece of that pie. But after China, the huge Islamic empires, they're going to be second in power, especially the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans, they rose to prominence during the 14th and 15th centuries. They gained control of critical trade routes and centers of commerce between Asia and Europe. So it's like, yeah, these big Western European kingdoms, they want to get into trade with China, but you got to go through the Ottomans to get there. So the Ottomans, their biggest triumph is going to come when the Sultan Mehmet II, M-E-H-M-E-T, Mehmet II, he will conquer the ancient Christian city of Constantinople, which is now known as Istanbul in Turkey. But the European rulers, you know, they're concerned at this time for good reason. So they're very distant from the Asian trade. They're separated from them by the Ottomans. And 14th and 15th century Europe sees about 90% of its people dependent on the land for their means of living. But there's warfare, poor transportation, low grain yields, these create all these problems create food shortages. There's also undernourishment in the people that produces a very disease-prone population because their immune systems aren't as hardy. And about a fourth of all children die within the first year of life at this time. But between the late 1340s and early 1350s, the bubonic plague, known as the Black Death, is gonna kill about a fourth of Europe's population. And the Black Death, it's going to disrupt both agriculture and commerce. It provokes a spiritual crisis that results in violent, unsanctioned religious movements. Like, for instance, the uh, Spanish Inquisition is one of the big ones, right? It was not officially sanctioned by the Roman Catholic Church, right? They kind of go off with it on their own. But the sudden drop in population helps to relieve some pressure on scarce resources. It's kind of one of those unintended upticks, upsides, if you will. But the survivors found that scarcity of workers makes for higher wages, lower prices on foods. Also, more land is readily available. But the increase uh, in some trade that starts to take place after this helps to bring wealth to Europe and it stretches all across Asia, the Middle East and Africa for resources. So the direction of Europe's political movement starts to lay the groundwork for this overseas colonization and some modern nation states were formed by dynasties like the Tudor monarchs of England that would be founded by King Henry VII, um, 
Francis the first in France, he founds a very big dynasty. King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella in Spain, you know, they each start to extend their political control over more territory, more people, more resources. But European expansion first will begin with Africa. They highly covet African spices, ivory and gold. And the European merchants, they want access to the West African markets by ship, but the navigational and shipbuilding technology, it's not yet up to this task. So the currents in the Atlantic Ocean, they'll help speed up and increase the speed of the ships all along the West African coast, but it makes it entirely impossible to return home. But uh, Portugal, their Prince Henry, known as the Navigator, he's going to be the first to try and tackle this problem. He will fund exploratory voyages. He will establish a maritime school, challenge sailors to find a solution to the problem of all these Atlantic currents. And so what they come up with in Portugal is a new type of ship called the Caravel, C-A-R-A-V-L. It's a very, it's a lighter, more maneuverable ship. It can sail better against contrary winds and in rough seas. They combine longer, narrower hulls, makes it built for speed with triangular sails that allow for more flexible steering. That's the Caravel. And so the Caravel allows the Portuguese to accomplish what the Europeans have been failing to do previously. They can not only sail down Africa's coast, but now they can actually return home. So some other advances the Portuguese make will be improving on the astrolabe by the Islamic culture. The astrolabe was uh, basically trying to position, calculate position. And so the Portuguese, they improve on it, and now you can calculate precision at sea with unprecedented accuracy. So now the technology is starting to catch up. But European elites, they had abandoned the slave culture that was established by the Roman Empire, and instead they were mainly relying on serfs and peasants for labor by the Middle Ages. And slaves were becoming more important as status symbols than as workers. Most were going to be young white women. The word slave originally comes from Slav, which is Slavic for girls and women from the Balkans and the coast of the Black Sea that were often targets of slave raids. But following the Crusades, European slavery starts to change. In 1099, Jerusalem was captured from the Turks and they found sugar plantations were being cultivated. And sugar was found to be a very difficult commodity to produce. It required very intense work during planting and close tending during the growing season. But once sugarcane reaches maturity, the crop reaches maturity, it requires 24-hour care to harvest and then process it so you can avoid it being spoiled. But sugar cultivation spreads. Europeans, especially the Portuguese, are now requiring new lands to grow and new sources of slaves for work. But in 1488, Bartolomeu Dias, he will sail around the Cape of Good Hope, which that is the southern tip of Africa, where South Africa is. And he sails far enough up the eastern coast of Africa to claim discovery of a sea route to India. But 10 years later... Vasco da Gama will reach India 
and the Portuguese interests then extend to Indochina, which will be modern-day Vietnam, and China. But now the Spanish want to start colonizing. So Columbus, Christopher Columbus, whenever he set sail with his three ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, right? He confuses his actual location on the voyage for he thinks he hits an island near Japan. So where was he, right? Uh, he coasts along Cuba and Hispaniola, which is now Haiti and the Dominican Republic, and he expects to see big golden temples and pagodas. But golden, Columbus's journals note that the people he encounter wear little clothing. They do wear tiny pendants of gold uh, and like gold nose rings. And he dubbed these people the Indians because he thinks he's near India or at least Japan, right? But these were actually the Tainos of the Caribbean. And it's going to take several years before sailors and geographers understand these islands and land masses they're coming up on are or this, you know, giant land mass between Europe and Asia. But one of the first geographers to do this was an Italian man. He was from the Florence region known as Amerigo Vespucci. And Amerigo is A-M as in Mike, E-R-I-G-O, and Vespucci, V as in Victor, E-S-P-U-C-C-I, Vespucci. But he first describes Columbus's Indies as Mundus Novus, or New World, is what he calls it. But there's actually going to be a German mapmaker that, rather than calling these new lands Columbia, after Columbus, he instead dubs them America in honor of Vespucci because he was the first map maker to really create map out the entirely new world. So looking at kind of comparing West Africa and Caribbean, the West African kingdoms, they have the military power to fight the European settlers, you know, but natives like the Tainos don't. And Europeans ultimately decide that these people, the Tainos they encounter, are better suited to be ruled rather than partner with as allies, is what they say. But after confirming these natives were a docile people, the climate's healthy, Columbus returns for a second voyage, but this time it's not going to be a peaceful one. So during the 1490s and early 1500s, Spanish colonizers, they start implementing a very brutal regime. They will slaughter Taino leaders, force their survivors to work in mines digging for gold and put them in fields cultivating sugar. There's only a few Spaniards that will speak out against exploitation of the natives. One of them was a man named Bartolome de las Casas. He was a man who spent several years in the Caribbean. He took part in the conquest. He profited from native labor Eventually, Las Casas will renounce his life. He will become a Dominican friar, speak out against all the Spanish cruelty towards the Indians, and his writings get translated into several European languages, and it gives rise to the infamous black legend of Spanish atrocities taking place in the Americas. But Las Casas' work has very little effect. You know, nobody's really listening to him at this time. But within a generation of Columbus's landing, the Taino population had nearly entirely collapsed from war, overwork, exhaustion, malnutrition, 
despair and diseases as well. But in 1519, an expedition that will be led by Hernan Cortez makes contact with native people on Mexico's Gulf Coast. And the locals he encounters speak of a very oppressive people to the west. And these are the Aztecs. So the Aztecs are similar to the Spaniards in some ways. So both societies are very predominantly rural. Most people live in small villages, practice agriculture, merchants and specialized craft workers. They tend to cluster and live in cities. They'll organize themselves into guilds or unions of a sort. They want protection from the government. Aztec nobility and priests, they lead all the politics and religion. They demand tribute from commoners. Both cultures are expansionists. They focus on conquering new lands and people to control. But some of the differences are the Aztecs don't have any ocean navigation knowledge. You know, they don't have metal tools and weaponry. They don't have any firearms. And the Aztec Empire, they had not exacted complete and total control over central Mexico, which the Spanish, and especially Cortez, will use that to their advantage. But Cortez, he's able to build himself an army of natives in Mexico to fight the Aztecs. Part of what helps him broker this alliance is there's a woman, a native woman, he comes in contact with that is known in history as Malenche. I believe her name is spelled M-E-L-E-N-C-H-E. I may have the spelling incorrect on that and I apologize, but Malenche. She is able to learn Spanish very quickly and she can translate into the native languages and she knows a lot of dialects from all around the region and so she is very instrumental in helping Cortez broker this alliance against the Aztecs. And using some disgruntled villagers that resent the Aztecs, Cortez and his men, they'll march on the Aztec capital, Tenochtitlan, home to more people than any city in the current existence of Europe at the time, which was around a quarter of a million people. But the Aztec emperor Montezuma, he has his ambassadors meet Cortez on the road to try and appease him with gifts and gold ornaments. And the Spanish get welcomed into the city as honored guests, but soon after they will seize and kidnap Montezuma and take him captive. They flee. But Cortez rules the empire indirectly for months, but after Montezuma's death, the Aztecs will drive the Spanish out. But like I mentioned in a previous podcast, you know, the native people, they don't have that acquired immunity to European diseases like the first settlers have. And so these epidemics that start breaking out, we call them virgin soil epidemics. And they're called this because the victims, they had no previous exposure. So smallpox alone will claim millions of lives in Mexico between 1520 and 1521. And while the Aztecs are suffering a smallpox epidemic, Cortez, who has a massive Indian force at his disposal, he will lay siege once again to Tenochtitlan, killing tens of thousands of Aztecs before the survivors who are very tired and weary and starving, they will surrender in August of 1521. But as the Europeans continue to sail back and forth 
they'll introduce new diseases and transfer germs from one region to the next. And we see another kind of transfer start to take place as well. So flora and fauna or plants and animals like horses and dogs, rats, hogs, all livestock essentially, especially we're looking at uh, plants get brought from Europe to the Americas, some of which will be oranges, lemons, figs, bananas from Africa and the Canary Islands. But there will actually be one disease that originated in America that they take back to Europe and it becomes more virulent than ever and that will be syphilis. Yeah, lovely, lovely stuff. But we see a kind of Colombian exchange today with different things and especially with diseases like bird flu or avian flu, West Nile virus, Zika, uh, there was concern a few years back with Ebola, swine flu. Now, in this day and age, there's coronavirus, right? It's n now a global pandemic. But you see this transfer take place all around the world with things like this. But uh, the crown will finally step in with Spain. So the Spanish monarchs, they had just stopped an aristocracy in the country from trying to rule the country they're not about to allow a colonial nobility to arise. So the crown then bribes the conquistadors into retirement. And so governing of the new Spanish colonies passes to a small army, small group of officials, soldiers, lawyers, Catholic bishops, all of which are appointed by the crown. And these people, they will maintain their headquarters in urban centers like Mexico City, which is what Tenochtitlan, the Aztec former capital city, uh, they rename it into Mexico City and they build a very complex, elaborate, centralized bureaucracy. And if you don't know what a bureaucracy is, that's a system of government that helps improve efficiency and chain of command. But it regulates the whole Spanish Empire and nearly every aspect of economic and social life. By the 1540s, huge discoveries of silver will be found in both Mexico and Peru, and mining the precious metal then turns into a very large-scale capitalist enterprise that requires pretty heavy substantial investment. But European investors, Spanish immigrants that have profited from cattle raising and sugar planting, they start pouring their capital or investment money into equipment and supplies that can then be used to mine the silver deposits more efficiently. And whole villages of Indians, they'll be forced to work in the mines with black slaves and free European workers. Uh, the city of Potosi, P-O-T-O-S-I, by 1570, this town in Peru will become larger than any city in either Spain or their American empire. And the population of Potosi was around 120,000 with local farmers that supplied the miners with food. Spanish merchants back in Seville, Spain, they'll export European goods to Potosi at a very nice, handsome profit. But the Spanish crown will claim one-fifth or about 20% of all the extracted silver. And during the 16th century, about 16,000 tons of silver will be exported from Spanish America to Europe. And some other conquistador, conquistadors, haha, conquistadors, <laughs> uh, 
uh, we're going to talk about here, the first of which is Ponce de Leon. So Juan Ponce de Leon, he is known as the Conqueror of Puerto Rico. He launches the first official expedition to the mainland, which he will name Florida in 1530. And Ponce de Leon, he was is rumored to have been searching for the fountain of youth, right? But De Leon will be met with armed resistance everywhere he went because the Spanish will be despised as being slave raiders. Eight years later, he returns, but he will be killed in battle with the Calusa Indians. Panfilo de Narvaez, P-A-N-F-I-L-O-D-E, N-A-R-V-A-E-Z, Panfilo de Narvaez. So he was a veteran of the Cuban conquest. He leads a major expedition back to Florida. His second in command will be a man named Olivar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, who advises him not to separate or split from the expedition, but he does so anyway. And Cabeza de Vaca and Narvaez they will separate near Tampa Bay with about 300 men to search for riches. And his men during this journey, they either fall ill, they get taken down by Indian archers, but only about 242 survivors from the entire expedition, uh, they, in a very disillusioned attempt, they make some makeshift rafts and try to sail along the Gulf Coast to Mexico but Nervais and most of his men will disappear at sea. But Cabeza de Vaca and a handful of survivors, they will wash upon islands off of the Texas coast, most likely Galveston Island. And Cabeza de Vaca and three other Spanish, including an African slave that is known in history as Esteban, will escape after being made prisoner by the local Indians. They're able to track across Texas and northern Mexico, where in present-day Chihuahua, they will pass through what had been Paquim, that trading city. And they find that there is an enduring commerce of feathers and greenstones or turquoise. But in 1536, these men will finally be discovered by a group of Spanish slavers and brought back to Mexico City. So they're finally saved many years later. But Hernando Soto... He searches the southeast for gold and small agricultural villages and takes whatever he wants. Food, clothing, luxury goods, even young women to use as servants, uh, also for other nefarious purposes. DeSoto's men become the first and last to see the big chiefdoms of the Mississippians. And many of the villages, they would uh, feign or fake knowledge of these vast cities of gold and send them off on just wild goose chases. But DeSoto and his men never find the treasures they're looking for. Vasquez de Coronado. So in 1539, this 29-year-old, he will lead about 300 Spaniards and 1,000 Mexican Indian warriors north, north, <laughs> north into present-day American Southwest. So Coronado, he goes in search of cities that he had been told are greater than Tenochtitlan, but his confidence wavers when they only encounter, you know, mud and straw pueblos. And he attempts to try and save the expedition, so he sends his men off in virtually every direction. To the west, his men will be blocked by the Grand Canyon. Others go east and will force themselves onto the descendants of the Anasazi, which are the modern pueblos of the upper Rio Grande. But finally, Coronado, he follows an Indian that he calls the Turk and 
this man leads him on a search of a rumored kingdom called Kivara. Q-U-I-V-A-R-A. It's thought he may have been referring to one of the Mississippian chiefdoms, but Coronado has the man strangled and killed somewhere near modern-day Kansas since he can't bring him to what he wants. But in 1542, Coronado returns to Mexico where the crown will try him for inflicting cruelties on the Indians. So you see the crown is not idly sitting by and standing for these atrocities. They're stepping in and saying, no, we don't want this. But Spain is able to hold on to their dominance in the Americas for most of the 16th century because most of the European powers take very little interest in the Americas. And the fishermen in England, they will explore like the North Sea, Labrador, Newfoundland, and Canada. Portugal will discover and lay claim to Brazil and South America. France will send some expeditions along North America's eastern shoreline and the St. Lawrence River as well. But Spain owes their dominance of the Western Hemisphere to religious upheaval that starts spreading all throughout Europe. And this would become known as the Protestant Reformation. And it's going to play a key role in colonizing the Americas afterward. But between 1100 and 1500, the European monarchs and popes of the Catholic Church, they were growing more and more powerful at this time. The church was acquiring more land. Their bureaucracy was adding to all the church income through tithing, which is taxes that are contributed by church members and also from fees paid by those appointed to the church offices. But in the 13th century, the 1200s, the church started selling what are called indulgences. So for a believer that's expecting to spend some time, you know, in purgatory for your sins after you die, you purchase an indulgence that's promised to shorten your punishment by drawing on a treasury of merit that's accumulated by, you know, good works of Christ and the saints, etc. But by the 15th century, the Catholic Church and the papacy were indifferent to popular religious concerns. Popes and bishops outright flaunted their wealth with very ornately devised uh, robes and such. Poorly educated parish priests neglected their pastoral duties, and religious assurance for the public was becoming an increasing concern. Enter the man known as Martin Luther. So Martin Luther is a man who abandoned studying the law to join a monastery. And he, like so many others in Europe during this time, were concerned with their eternal fate. So he seeks solace in the Catholic Church. You know, he is a Christian at this time. He's a Catholic, which is the only Christian denomination there is pretty much at this time in Europe. But he finds it lacking. So at this time, Catholic doctrine, doctrine sorry, was teaching a person could be saved by faith in God and by his or her own good works, leading a virtuous life. You observe all the sacraments like baptism, the mass, penance. You make pilgrimages to holy places like Jerusalem and Rome. You pray to Christ and the saints. But Luther, however, believes that human nature was innately evil. He fears that he couldn't leave a life, lead a life that merits salvation. So he turns to studying the Bible himself, which the Bible at this time had only been written in Latin. So think about having to learn another language, be it Latin, in order to teach yourself all this stuff. But he is ordained a priest not long after, and during this time comes upon his belief of justification by faith alone. And salvation, he concludes, 
comes by faith alone. So after he is ordained a priest, he's assigned to teach at a university in Wittenberg, Germany. It's spelled W-I-T-T-E-N-B-U-R-G. He becomes increasingly critical of the Catholic Church as an institution. But he will be most famous for in 1517, he nails on the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg, 95 theses attacking the Catholic hierarchy for selling salvation in the form of indulgences. And the Pope and German representatives of the Catholic Church, they first try to silence Martin Luther. He will not stay silent. They eventually will excommunicate him and kick him out of the church. But that only cements his resolve to oppose the church. And Luther's ideas will spread all throughout Europe in the 1530s. And soon other reformers begin to oppose the church. But the most influential successor of Luther will be John Calvin, a French lawyer turned theologian. And Calvin agrees with Luther that men and women cannot merit their own salvation, right? But where Luther sees God as being a loving deity, extending mercy, Calvin sees God as being an awesome, all-knowing, and all-powerful God. And Calvin also has this theory called the elect. You know, Calvin believes God had selected certain people as his agents to help God bring about victory in the battle of good versus evil here on earth. And these people are predestined by God for salvation. This is where that theory of predestination comes from. You're automatically chosen whether you're going to go to heaven or hell, right? And Calvin and Luther essentially create a religion that changes the world. And Luther believes Christians should accept the existing social order, right? But Calvin calls on Christians to become activists and reshape society and the government to conform with God's laws from the Bible. And soon we'll see some other Protestant or non-Catholic groups pop up. For instance, the Huguenots of France. So Huguenots is spelled H-U-G-U-E-N-O-T-S, but these are Calvin's French followers. They see North America as being a potential refuge from religious persecution, but under the leadership of a man named Jean Ribot, so Jean is spelled J-E-A-N, like Jean, and Ribot, R-I-B-A-U-L-T, There's about 150 Huguenots in 1562 that establish a simple village on Paris Island off the coast of South Carolina, but this expedition will fail when they resort to dun-dun-dun cannibalism. Yeah. Two years later, Rebo will lead another group to an area south of present-day Jacksonville, Florida, though. And here, they will establish Fort Caroline. The Huguenots establish a friendly relationship with the local Temucua Indians, But the Spanish and the Caribbean see the Huguenots as a threat. So French pirates have been trying to siphon silver from the Americas by attacking the Spanish galleon ships as they're riding the Gulf Stream current up the southeastern coast of North America before they turn towards Spain to cross the Atlantic Ocean. But there's going to be a man named Pedro Menendez de Aviles in 1565. He establishes a settlement on the Florida coast called St. Augustine. And St. Augustine is still the United States' oldest continuously occupied non-Indian settlement. And Aviles and 500 soldiers, they then set out for Fort Caroline. But after waging battle and some later executions, Menendez and his men killed Ribot and about 500 of his Huguenots. 
So after this happens, the Huguenots really lose hope that North America is going to be their land of peace. And so they just resign themselves to enduring persecution back in France. And then there's the English Reformation. So King Henry VIII, he is unhappy to say the least when his wife, Catherine of Aragon, the Spanish daughter of King Isabel, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, right? She gives birth to only a daughter, Mary. She fails to give him a son to be heir. She has several miscarriages and stillbirths. None of her male offspring are able to survive, unfortunately. But Henry then petitions the Pope to have his marriage annulled so that a new wife can give him a son. And the King of Spain is Catherine's nephew at this point. He is enraged by Uncle Henry's move. And so he persuades the Pope to refuse his request. So out of defiance, Henry VIII, he will then establish the Church of England. He divorces Catherine since he's no longer Catholic, he can do this. He will then marry his mistress, Anne Boleyn and proclaims himself to be head of the Church of England. In the Church of England, it is still essentially Catholic in its doctrine. You know, he's not setting out to practice any reformist beliefs. It's just, you know, we're not calling ourselves Catholic. But later, during his daughter Elizabeth's reign, there's going to be a very vocal minority of her subjects that will be reformers calling for the Church of England to rid itself of all the bishops, elaborate ceremonies, and other symbols of Catholicism. And because of their zeal for these Calvinist ideals, opponents of the radicals will call them Puritans. Elizabeth really holds no issue with radical Protestants, but with radical Catholics she does. So she's worried Spain might try and use English Catholics to undermine her rule. And also she feared based on her advisors stuff that Catholic Ireland in the West is going to be a base the Spanish or French might use to invade England. But beginning in 1565, she encourages members of the English elite to sponsor private trips to try and subdue the Irish and settle loyal English Protestants there. And this is going to be the beginning of English colonization. They first experiment in Ireland, essentially. But Humphrey Gilbert and Walter Raleigh, they're the English equivalent of the conquistador and their desire to try and pursue more and more adventure, right? But in 1578, Elizabeth is going to grant Gilbert a royal patent, the first English colonial charter to explore, occupy, and govern any territory in America that is not actually possessed of any Christian prince or people. So she's like, if nobody else has claimed it, then you can. So Gilbert gets made proprietor of all this land between Florida and Labrador. And he hopes to set up a medieval kingdom of his own where loyal tenant farms are going to work the lands of these giant manors. They'll pay rent to feudal lords. He holds a very utopian view. You know, he plans to encourage the poor of England to immigrate by providing them free land and a government to be chosen by the consent of the people. It's rather progressive for its time but his hopes and Elizabeth's hopes for the expedition will be dashed when his ship goes down in the Atlantic in a storm unfortunately but Walter Raleigh is Humphrey Gilbert's stepbrother he had been laying the groundwork for a British American empire for quite some time he's going to enlist the help of a man named Richard Heiklut H-A-K-L-U-Y-T he's a clergyman and he 
petitions him to write a plea for the English settlement of America. And Hacklew is going to make arguments like the land is very fertile for crops. The Indians are going to view them as being liberators compared to the Spanish. By the summer of 1584, Raleigh will send an exploratory voyage to the outer banks of present-day North Carolina. The leaders will make contact with the people known as the Roanoke that will be ruled by a chief named Wingina, W-I-N-G-I-N-A. And Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, will knight Raleigh and allow him to name the land Virginia in honor of the Virgin Queen. Wingina has contact with Europeans before Raleigh in 1584 and wanted to seek access to the English trade and influence. But after the failure of his first colony, Raleigh is then going to take a second expedition of around 120 men, women, and children, members all of the middle class, and grant each person a 500-acre estate. In July of 1587, everything goes wrong. The expedition's pilot insists on leaving the colonists at Roanoke Island rather than the Chesapeake, as originally had been planned. The local Roanoke Indians don't take pleasure in seeing the English return. The colonists feared the conflicts would arise with them. So they send their elected governor, the artist John White, back to England for reinforcements. And White returns to England in 1588, just when the massive Spanish Navy, known as the Spanish Armada, is preparing to attack England. And Elizabeth enlists every seaworthy ship and able-bodied sailor to help stop the invasion. The Armada is defeated, John White is able to return to the Roanoke colony, but it's not going to be until 1590. And what he finds is the colony is completely deserted. And a mysterious message that reads Croatoan, C-R-O-A-T-O-A-N, is inscribed on a post. And to this day, for a long time, nobody knew what happened to the colonists there. But actually what happened, they just officially confirmed this not long ago, months ago but they have historians and scholars have been speculating for quite a while that the Roanoke colonists had merged and moved in with assimilated into the Croatoan tribe which was friendlier than the Roanokes and that is exactly what happened they assimilated into them they migrated elsewhere so but they were able to endure that way so that is it for the European world prior to contact and what the Spanish started doing in their early colonization efforts. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, but stay tuned for more to come with Professor Cheryl Boswell on American history.